It's not uncommon for me to wish that I could just put the choir song, the prayer that they just sang, um, to put it on repeat and just do that the whole rest of the service. Um, as we think about this week and living for the Lord, if somehow that could be playing in our mind, we could be singing that to the Lord. I know it would do us good to be able to keep our focus where it belongs with all the, the challenges that we face in a given week. Well, today we reach the last words of Paul's second epistle to the church at Thessalonica, and we've learned much from the apostles' instruction to this exemplary young church. They faced persecution from the beginning, but held firm. They not only survived the attacks, but they were thriving in a hostile world. Their faith under fire held firm. The dangers they faced were not only from the persecution, but from false teachers and disobedient brothers. The same is true of the church today. And the apostolic strategies for facing these dangers still work today. We could sum up Paul's final words to these dear believers that he loves with this command, stay the course. That was Paul's desire for them, and that is our desire for ourselves. So what makes staying the course possible? We want to explore that question this morning from Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, the last words of this letter to their church. Follow with me as I read. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Five things we're going to look at from these last words of this epistle that are important to staying the course. First is perseverance, which really sums up the whole idea of staying the course, but he's going to apply it in a particular area. And then accountability, peace, discernment, and grace. These five things we're going to look at this morning. So first, perseverance. In verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. As for you, contrast these brothers with those brothers that were living idle lives out of line with the apostles' command and example. It says, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't faint. Don't lose heart. Don't lose courage in doing good. And he is talking about practicing what is beneficial and appropriate. There are basically two common synonyms the New Testament uses for good works. One word leans into the moral rightness of doing good, and the other leans toward the benefit of doing good. 
The word that Paul uses here stresses the beneficial nature of doing what's right. So remember that that every sin is not only contrary to the moral standards of God, but also harmful to others and to ourselves. And keeping that reality in mind actually helps us as we try to fight temptation to do wrong and gather courage to do right. It's not just, well, is this right or wrong? Is this morally right or wrong? It's also recognize that God in His wisdom is steering us toward what will be beneficial and away from what will be harmful. The, the two always go together. Doing what is morally right and beneficial, though, is not always easy. It calls for self-denial and persevering faith in many instances. And when doing good involves confronting a brother or sister who's living openly contrary to gospel commands, it's easy to shrink shrink from doing what true love for God and for that individual would call us to do. It's actually, I find it one of the most difficult things to do in, in all the ministry. I much prefer going, you know, at a boy and encouraging people to having to say, hey, we need to talk. That, that's not an enjoyable thing. It takes some level of courage. It takes work and self-denial to develop the relational capital that we draw on when we exercise healthy church discipline. And you remember that church discipline starts with one-on-one conversations. It doesn't start when it finally reaches a members meeting. It starts with just our looking out for one another and encouraging one another. And as we engage in this, the process is usually messy and even complicated in working through the life factors that actually contributed to the sinful practice. Nobody does wrong just out of the blue. There's There's other things connected to that. There's reasons, there's temptations, there's a a history, and it it takes time to work through that so that you even understand where the person's coming from and and how to help him or her. Now, even brothers and sisters that eventually come around often respond at first in hurtful ways to those that are trying to help them. And if the sinning individual does not repent and is therefore not restored, He or she nearly always attacks without mercy those who sacrifice the most to help them turn. It's almost like the more effort you made, the more blame you'll receive. And this is the nature of of dealing with a fallen race. This is the nature of dealing with one another when we're out of line with God. When I'm out of line with God, it's, it's harder for people to get along with me and for me to get along with people. And so we know when we wade into this kind of situation, it's going to be difficult. It's no wonder then that Paul says, don't lose courage in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing what will likely drain your strength when you engage in it and put you at risk when you engage in it. This is but one area of living for the glory of God and for the good of others. In fact, as every form of good works we're called to practice takes focus and energy and time. No wonder, then, that the New Testament repeatedly calls us to persevere, to keep on keeping on, to hang in there no matter what. Doing so is the mark of our having been born again, the perseverance of the saints. We hang in there The the life of God at work in our lives through the indwelling spirit energizes our obedience to God, 
motivates that, and, and he, he empowers our self-sacrificing love toward other people. If God were not at work in us, we could not sustain living this way. And really, if God were not commanding us to do this, I think most of us would count it too much to pay. We, we wouldn't be willing but part of the way we show the worth of God in following him is that we're, we're willing to actually pay a price to do so. And, and it's good for us to remember that if we feel there's too much to sacrifice, you know, Christ says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And we say, well, that, that's just too much sacrifice. Just keep in mind that every one of us will spend our lives 24-7, we'll spend our lives doing something good or bad. Sometimes we talk about saving time, like we can put it in a box and, and store it for a later day. No, you use it now for something, good or bad. And serving self and Satan will cost you too. It might seem the easier route at first, but it is the poisonous path of self-destruction and sorrow. You might as well spend your strength and time doing what is good and what is eternal in its value. So when you struggle with the cost of following Jesus, just remember, it will cost you something to follow Satan. It will actually cost you more in the long run. Christ promises that you will not lose your reward for following him. Even a cup of cold water given in his name. He's not a stingy master. His, his love for you is steadfast and strong and he knows the smallest detail of whatever you do out of love for him and love for others. Now, sometimes we worry, well, you know, if I enter into this situation, if I try to rescue that brother or sister and, and, and talk to them, I'm not sure I'll say the right thing. I'm not sure I'll, I'll do it. I think I might, I might mess it up. I might make it worse. That's true. All right. So how, why would you do it? Well, out of love for Christ and out of love for that person. And, and Christ knows why you're doing what you're doing. Christ knows what you're paying to do it. He's completely aware of what's going on. He knows your blind spots. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what's easy for you and what's hard for you. He knows all that. And he's the one ultimately before whom you stand. And God knows how to take care of his kids. He knows how to lead them and look out for them. And you can count on that. The question is, are you willing to do what Christ calls you to do? Are you willing to hang in there, keep persevering out of love for him and love for others? This is what the scriptures teach us. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. By the way, when you sow a crop, do you harvest it the very next day? No. You know, I think sometimes we think if we do the right thing, it's instant, presto, all the good stuff comes to us immediately. That's not the way life works. That's not the way hardly anything works. Okay? The one who sows to his own flesh will, from the flesh, reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's a season to sow. There's a season to harvest. 
And remember that as you give yourself to Christ and you show love to a brother or sister, even in the difficult things, that there's a harvest that comes from that. That's a good harvest because it's good seed. There's also a harvest that comes from failing to do what's right and doing the wrong thing instead. So these questions for you, in what areas of doing good are you growing weary and losing heart? I think probably we could put almost everything on the list of growing weary because that's what work does. It makes us weary. But, but maybe you're losing heart. Like, I don't know if it's worth it. I, I don't know if I can keep on keeping on. So, you know, what are those areas where you're struggling? Well, then in what ways can you strengthen yourself to persevere? You know, it might be something as simple as playing for the cause of Christ and singing that to yourself. It might be praying on the way to work while, while you're driving to work and saying, God, help me keep an eternal perspective. It, it might be just, God, help me. I don't think I can stand another day of this. Hold on to me, preserve me, use me. One of the ways that we help one another is by helping one another, reaching out to other people. So what brothers or sisters can you bring into your life to help you persevere? See, one of the problems, when we, when we get mired with what's difficult for us and what we're struggling with, we, we tend to retreat. We tend to cover that. We don't, we don't want anyone to see us sweat. But you... You've got brothers and sisters, I think if you're fair to them, that if they knew your struggle, if they knew how at risk you are, they would gladly be praying for you. They would gladly be checking in on you. They would, they would gladly come shoulder to shoulder with you and help you through this. So, so let me encourage you. You might be a very private person and your struggle, and you're about to go under, but, but nobody knows you well enough to actually help you. Part of that's on you. Now, part of that's on us as brothers and sisters. We want to look out for those that are struggling. We want to look out for those whose countenance is downcast. Like in a meeting like this, as you move among people, who are the people that are withdrawn? Who are the people that look discouraged? Well, let's take the initiative and, and help them. But also individually, each of us have things that we struggle with that you know, we, we need to have built enough relationship with one another that we can actually share that. And we can ask them to pray. You don't have to go into every detail. You could just say, hey, I'm struggling right now, and I can't really go into that, but, but would you please pray for me? Or pray for me today especially. Um, and a lot of times, you know, things in your life that you're struggling with aren't nearly as veiled as you think they are. People that care about people often pick up on that, and you may find that they're already praying for you. But I encourage you to reach out to one another. Okay, so we want to have perseverance, and, and related to that is accountability. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So, here Paul is returning to this area of concern that he's addressed in this particular chapter. In fact, many believe that this issue 
is what prompted Paul's writing the second letter to the church at Thessalonica so soon, probably six months or so, after writing his first letter to them. You recall that in that first letter, he talked about this very issue in chapter 4. And this, so this is actually follow-up. The, the church is a family that, that welcomes everyone who's trusting in the Lord Jesus to live together in unity, serving the Lord. But for any family to be healthy, there has to be accountability. It's a community of love, but that love calls for behavior consistent with it. And when we're talking about the family of God, we, we dare not turn a blind eye to a family member who's behaving in a way that is rebellious to God, harmful to others, and destructive to self. What are we to do when someone refuses to obey what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ have commanded that believers do? And we're talking about, as we mentioned last week, we're talking about these higher level things, behavior that's just totally contrary to the gospel. We're not talking about every time somebody steps out of line and you're there with your little book policing it. it it's someone who's flagrantly living contrary to the gospel. And, and sending a mixed message then to the world as to what the gospel is and who Jesus is and what his followers are like. Well, what does the apostle tell us to do? He says, first, take note of that person. Well, this means we're paying attention. And when we see it, we don't pretend it doesn't matter. Ignoring or excusing such a person conveys the idea that the authority of Christ doesn't matter and more than that, that this individual at risk who professes to follow Christ doesn't matter. And, and this is, particularly in our culture, this is very, you know, we're very much like live and let live, and, and we don't want to interfere, and we don't want to be the bad guy, but he says, take note of that person. Pay attention. Don't, don't live your life with blinders on. You should be looking out for other people. Second, have nothing to do with him. If your interaction and relationship with this brother or sister in flagrant sin continues on as normal, you become party to their sin. You're conveying that you're okay with it. You're letting that sin take hold in his life and in the family of God. And, and doing so is not good, and it's not loving for the sinning person. It's not good, and it's not loving for the rest of the body. In time, such gospel-denying living will spread like gangrene. It misrepresents the gospel and its impact on people. And what happens is the light becomes darkness. The church gives up its reason for existing in the world. We are here to shine light in the darkness, not to become part of the darkness. Well, what's the immediate purpose and effect of taking this course of action? That he may be ashamed. Do those words surprise you? Because they're very countercultural. They're very counter what we like to think Christianity means. 
Our psychologized culture is very sensitive to doing anything that brings shame to people, even when they're practicing shameful things. But when I'm doing wrong, my being ashamed for doing wrong is important to the welfare of my soul. If I, if I feel no conviction for that, if instead I feel affirmation for that, that's not a good thing. It's part of the Holy Spirit's work of conviction, this shame that points me to repentance and to being restored. Trying to neutralize the shame of sinful behavior hardens my heart to sinful behavior. It leads to justifying sinful behavior, then celebrating sinful behavior, and eventually counting confrontation of sinful behavior as evil. Evil becomes good, and good becomes evil. And we have had that displayed front and center for us in our culture that's so afraid of shame. We need to be more afraid of sin than we are of shame. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, when we say shaming, it's not holding a person up for ridicule. Christian shame and sorrow over sin leads us to repentance and restoration in life. And, and healthy shame produced by fellow Christians holding me accountable and refusing to pretend that my open sinning doesn't matter points me to a remedy. It doesn't leave me hopeless and helpless. It does not ridicule or berate the sinner. It doesn't pile on. Having nothing to do with this brother is calculated to awaken his desire to be a healthy part of the body once again by getting right with God and living in accord with that reconciliation. We don't want the gospel to be a sham. We don't want our profession of following Christ to be a sham. There has to be an integrity to it between what we say and what we do. And this is exactly what verse 15 underscores. Do not regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. So having nothing to do with him is not the whole strategy. We must also warn him. We need to literally put him in mind. He's Help him think straight about how he's living. In doing so, you are treating him as a brother that you care about, as a beloved family member. You know, when kids are misbehaving in a public space, okay, it's their own parents who are first to step up to deal with them. We don't have the same responsibility toward children of other parents. Now, we might eventually say something, but, but that's their job, and we recognize that. But if it's my kids, then I need to do something about it. We understand intuitively that a loving family ought to take care of its own, not just in, with instruction, but also with discipline. And the same thing is true of the body of Christ. We may decry the evil of the age, but our job is not policing those outside the church. We are responsible for those inside the church family. And I think a lot of times we get it backwards. 
It's like, oh, these are family members, so I'm going to look the other way, and I'm going to shout at the darkness, the people out there. That's backwards. Paul says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, that's someone that's abusive in his speech, ripping on other people, a drunkard or a swindler, he cheats in business, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Of course, he was dealing with a particular case of sin that was in the church in Corinth, and they were actually somehow proud of the fact they hadn't dealt with it. I guess they thought it was showing grace. Well, sometimes we get this backwards. We spend too much time fretting and fuming over the sins of those who don't know Jesus. All they're demonstrating is that they need gospel rescue, and you don't have to worry that they're getting away with it. Nobody gets away with it. You know that. So it ought to evoke your your pity and your compassion and your desire for them to see Christ and to, to repent of their sin. But when a brother behaves wickedly like an unbeliever, I'm not supposed to berate him as if he were an enemy. I'm supposed to come alongside and put him in mind. That's treating him with the love that a brother deserves. Ignoring his sinful lifestyle is not showing his love. It's actually showing him that I don't value him. We know that hatred is not always expressed with slander and violence. Sometimes it's expressed with treating that person as if he doesn't matter or doesn't even exist. I think we call it passive-aggressive. You mistreat a person by erasing that person from your attention. Husbands who aren't living with their wives in an understanding way and valuing her as a weaker vessel will sometimes mistreat her by just ignoring her and cutting her off from his life. It's very hurtful. Same, same thing with when one of us is struggling with a sin that's contrary to the gospel, we don't just ignore it. We approach that brother. We put him in mind that there's not repentance then we're not going to just go on with fellowship as normal. So when we exercise the church discipline of having nothing to do with a brother sinning against gospel commands, the way we do that is really important. It's with a heart and effort to warn him as a brother, not treat him as an enemy. And that takes prayerful wisdom and loving courage. And those of you that have been members for some time know that we've been through this kind of process on any number of occasions. And one of the things that we strive to do is be clear enough about the sin without exposing everything about the person's life in front of a broad audience and without, without dealing with it in a way that shows lack of respect and love toward that person. 
but with, with the clear communication that our desire to see that person restored. And you know, sometimes we do that well and sometimes maybe not so well, but that's the goal. So what unrepentant brother or sister do you need to break fellowship with in order to move him or her toward repentance? Now, remember, that's, a, that's assuming that you've actually had a conversation and you know what's going on and you've, you've made the effort, okay? You've followed some process here. Sometimes, though, because breaking the fellowship is so painful to us, we just finally, you know, shrug our shoulders and throw up our hands and say, okay, well, I'm just going to keep doing as normal. Well, that, that's not really the helpful thing for this brother. And, of course, Matthew 18 talks about pulling another person alongside and getting other people involved. So there's a process there. But what sinning brother or sister are you treating as an enemy rather than warning as a brother or sister? So I can try to exercise church discipline, but do it in a way that's actually contrary to the spirit that Paul calls on the church to exercise. So there's, there's a balance here. There's care here driven by love for God, driven by love for this person. Accountability, accountability, and we all need it. Third, to stay the course, we need peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. The Lord himself is the divine source of peace. He's the shalom that pervades the church family and, and the life of the individual believer. That kind of peace is like a pearl of great price, especially in the context of the challenges like what the Thessalonian believers were facing from their persecuting enemies on the outside and their disobedient brothers on the inside. So Paul prays that the Lord will give them peace at all times and in every way, a pervasive peace. This is something that we would want to pray for ourselves and for other bodies of believers. Jesus the Messiah is the Prince of Peace. He has a kingdom that, that makes all things right, and God himself brings peace in our conflicts and peace to our fears, external and internal peace. Listen to what that would look like practically in some of Paul's other writings to churches. In Colossians 3, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, that's controlled strength, and patience, that's long-suffering versus short-temperedness, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And here's our word, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it be the umpire of your community of the faithful, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. One of the most disruptive attitudes to the peace of a church body is ingratitude. Like always honing in on what's wrong. I mean, try, build any relationship where all you do is pick at what's wrong. 
and, and never praise or encourage or show gratitude for what's right. Try building a marriage or a family or a business or any kind of relation. That, it just doesn't work, okay? So we want to have this kind of spirit. Philippians 4, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. In other words, he's right there watching everything. He rules in this kingdom of peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, God is there, so talk to him so that you remember that he is there. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It goes beyond anything you could work out as you think through it. Will guard your hearts like a garrison of soldiers. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul adds in verse 16, may the Lord be with you all, he's really reminding us of what the secret to peace is. It is his ruling presence that brings peace to our hearts and to our relationships. Whenever we're keenly aware that the Lord is at hand, that he is near, peace guards our hearts and heals our relationships. So where are you lacking peace? And how can the Lord's presence and power help you find it? Because that's what the Lord brings. He is our peace. Are there ways you are disrupting the peace in your relationships, and how could you correct that behavior? We want to live in accord with the peace that the Lord brings in order to stay the course. And then discernment. Verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Well, this, this seems like a throwaway detail, you know, a housekeeping matter, until we remember that it was a fake letter supposedly from Paul, that it caused some believers in the church at Thessalonica to fear that the day of the Lord had already come. First Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, this is actually 2 Thessalonians 2, um, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. It was absolutely essential to the health of the believers in Thessalonica to treat as authoritative only genuine apostolic teaching and nothing else that pretended to be so. For us to stay the course, it's critical for us to test whatever teaching we receive by the apostles' teaching now preserved for us in the New Testament canon of the Scriptures, we must reject everything that contradicts or redefines that teaching. We reject it as another gospel, powerless to save and deadly to our spiritual health. We cannot stay the course if we do not exercise this critical discernment in what we receive as authoritative. John Stott's commentary on First and Second Thessalonians puts it this way, and normally I don't give a lengthy quote, but I felt like this so summed up the importance of apostolic authority that I wanted to pass on to you. There's nobody in the church who has an authority which even remotely resembles 
that of the apostles of Christ. Nor has there been since the last apostle died. How then can we submit to apostolic authority today? Only by submitting to the New Testament, where the authority of the apostles, which is the authority of Christ, is undiminished. For if Christ spoke through them, and they spoke in the name of Christ, to disagree with their teaching is to disagree with Him. The well-being of the church in the present century, as in the first, depends on our listening to Jesus Christ and obeying Him as His Word comes to us through His apostles in the New Testament. This is the test of everything. That, that's why our slogan, life by the book, it's like nothing else can be the test of faith and practice. Today, as in the past, there's great pressure to syncretize, to combine biblical teaching with the so-called wisdom of the age. It invariably leads to diminishing the authority of Scripture and the health of the church. The deconstruction and defection so common in our day comes from the appalling lack of discernment as to what is truth and what is not. And, and let me just add it often, it often, the blame for that is often those that are tasked to teach the word, mixing other stuff in that is not the word and pretending like it came from God. It appears that this attraction is an attraction to the world's approval that supersedes loyalty to Christ and to His authoritative Word that's been handed down to us by His apostle. And that course is deadly and damning. Sometimes holding on to the Word, to what the Scriptures actually say, may feel crazy compared to what prevails as wisdom in our time. And any number of subjects are this way, where if you're educated, if you're with it, if you're sensitive, if you're loving, if you're whatever good term you want to, then you will yield to whatever passes for wisdom now, rather than what is established as absolutely authoritative wisdom from God. You've got to hold on to this. You've got to practice discernment. Be careful. Now, often when I'm talking to people and I hear them talking about things that just are like they're a little off or they're a little odd in the way that they're taking it. They don't really line up with Scripture. They often they have a great hunger for information. They're often the smartest people in the room. I mean, literally. And, and they, they read a lot. So they read this blog and that blog and this book and that book and heard this preacher or that preacher. And it's, it's tempting when you feed on all that enough, it's tempting to start explaining away clear statements from Scripture. Do not do it. You cannot stay the course if you do. And We've seen in our own body, just, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not that a person is ignorant that they fall to this. It's often on the other end of the scale. It has to do with where your heart is 
and what you count as actually authoritative truth. So in what areas are you tempted to ignore or to explain away clear scriptural teaching? It's really important that you do this diagnostic. What that is scriptural feels odd to you up against the prevailing wisdom of the age? Where are you tempted to cave? What threatens to outrank your love and loyalty to Christ and his teaching through the apostles? Sometimes it's, in fact, usually it's not an intellectual thing. It's actually a love for some particular sin. It's, it's a desire or, or a desire for something that's not as important as being true to Christ. And in what ways do you test what you read and hear by apostolic teaching? I think it's really important as you hear stuff that's a little off to, you know, flag it. I, even when I'm studying for, for messages and I'm going through a commentary, if I'm reading something and I'm going like, wait a minute, but that's not what this verse says. I'm going to put it in the margin. I'm going to put question mark, exclamation point. Like, what about this passage? Okay. And it may be that I don't understand what the man is writing, but I, but I want to be careful that I'm not taking in what is not actual scriptural. All right, finally, grace, verse 18. And by the time we've traveled through this, we know we need grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace, as you know, it's favor, it's, it's goodness, it's kindness, it's beauty that we don't deserve and we could never earn. Were it not for the unmerited favor and goodness of God poured out on us through our Lord Jesus Christ, we could not stay the course. His grace has rescued us in the first place. His grace strengthens us. His grace keeps us and protects us. His grace will bring us safely home. He's the Lord of all. He's the God-man Savior. That's what His name Jesus conveys. Yahweh saves. He's the long-promised Messiah, the anointed King of an everlasting kingdom. He's made us citizens of his kingdom. He's transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and made us children of light. And so he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. His amazing, astonishing grace is for every believer, man and woman, boy, girl. We are favored people, and that is why we survive. And that is how we thrive in a hostile world, even when our faith is under fire. The Lord Jesus Christ will not lose even one of us who belong to him. His grace has led me safe thus far. John Newton would testify, and grace will lead me home. So how can knowing the grace of Christ is with you help you stay the course in living for Jesus? and doing good toward others? And how does knowing His grace is on all true believers shape your attitudes and expectations? So here we are at the beginning of another week. We know what some of the challenges will be this week. We don't know what others will be. But we do know that if we belong to Jesus, our desire is to stay the course. It will take perseverance, accountability, We'll need peace and discernment and grace. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
for your kindness to us in preserving this letter from the Apostle Paul to the believers in Thessalonica. It has traveled 2,000 years and thousands and thousands of miles. It has moved through from Greek eventually to English in language we can understand so that we could benefit from your words and your commands. God, I pray you'd help us stay the course. I pray you'd help us break the hold of of the passing fashion of the age and hold on to the ancient of days and hold on to the king of the ages, Jesus Christ. Lord, our hope is in Jesus, and we pray you'd help us stay the course in following him all the way home. For it's in his name we pray.